The following discussion is not necessarily the views of all involved. The goal is to start open and honest discussion in a Christian worldview. Like all things, weigh what you hear with what you know and join us in our pursuit for the truth. Enjoy the podcast. Everyone's God was mad in Assyria. <laughs> Everyone wanted them to die. We won't do that to you guys, not like Joel Osteen. Give me five dollars. While they were horrible bosses, they did invent interculturalism. All right, I'd like to welcome everyone to the Second Rate Saints podcast. I'm your uh, host, Caleb. To my left is... I'm Joel, your producer. And to my left... I'm Josh. I'm claiming CEO status. Um, to my left is Caleb. Weird uh, power grab there, but all right. Uh, nobody had claimed it yet, so... <laughs> you might notice that Colton's missing. Yeah, and Stuart. And we're missing Colton. Well, and, and Stuart's and also Stuart. not here. We're missing him always. But there's just the three of us. And this is our second episode on Minor Prophets. Um, but before we get into that, Josh. Yes. You read a, you, you read books? What'd you read? Tell uh, me about it. I read a book called Show Me Your Glory, Understanding the Majestic Splendor of God by Stephen J. Lawson. Um, this book is about the attributes of God. He, it's not a list just describing facts about God as if it was like, if you just read this list, you understood everything about God. But he goes through the story of Moses trying to see the glory of God, asking to see the glory of God after he's been through everything and God shows him uh, because he wants to. He even says as such, I want to present myself to you. Um, I want to enter deeper revelation like there. Um, And so what he does is he, takes off from that story into discussion on the attributes of God, goes through them, laden heavily with scripture, rooted in scripture, um, and goes holds to the uh, traditional view of the simplicity of God, which is he's not made of attributes, but he makes his attributes. And his attributes are connected because they're unified. Um, they're not separate. Um so, like, for example, like, God is loving, just, merciful, good. Uh, he's wrathful. He's, um, he takes vengeance on his enemies, blah, 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 all these things. But all those things are related. So, like, his justice is loving, merciful, gracious, mm-hmm. kind, um, which is ironic. Um, but it's also good. Um, and his goodness is also just, wrathful, mm-hmm. gracious, kind. And his, uh, his love is also wrathful, justice, merciful, and stuff like that. Um, anyways, but he does a really good job of breaking down the attributes into sub-ideas, um, taking them to their um, to the ends of the ideas, not just leaving it with God's just, yeah. but like describing it and rooting it in Scripture where God is described as being just, mm-hmm. the situations he's described as being just. And sometimes, because we're humans when God says he's just and then does something and we go, I don't like that. And it's. So I find a lot of times when I read um, things like that, that are claiming to, to know the attributes of God or explain the attributes of God. Yeah. <clears throat> I find a lot of times they, they deal heavily with personification. 
that they, you know, they will accidentally attribute, or I assume accidentally, I think wrongly attribute uh, human aspects to God. Okay. Um, such as, uh, you know, uh, jealousy for man is different than jealousy on God's part. Okay, right? yeah. Uh, because his omniscience allows him to be fully just in his jealousy, whereas yeah. uh, man yeah. doesn't do that. Yeah. And I think um, somebody described... That's the difference between envy and jealousy mm. is the jealousy that God has is the kind of jealousy that um, a husband or a spouse has when they're spending a lot of time with someone else. And it's like in a, there's a good time when jealousy is applicable. Yeah. Like if your spouse is spending all of their waking hours with another person um, and not with you, and you're their spouse, and it's like, hey, like, what are we, what are we doing here? Um, <clears throat> and God even describes Himself as being jealous in that case yeah. throughout the prophets. Um, and that's what He does: is He roots the arguments for the attributes in God's own description of them. Okay. So, like, when He it describes that He's gracious, He quotes all the verses where it's like, "I am gracious and compassionate." slow to anger, rich in love, stuff like that. You mentioned like his uh, use of the simplicity of God idea. Yeah. Um, how much interplay between the ideas is, does he actually engage? So like in each of the attributes, so for like the fur, uh, let's go, what's a good one? God is intensely personal. So the glory of God, chapter two, he goes into God is personal God is independent, God is near, God is sovereign, God is powerful, God is compassionate, God is loving, God is worthy, God is punishing, um, and then ends with the greatest priority. Those are like the headings for the sections. Um, and it so it's like his power is related to his glory because his power is what a, like is what the glory is emanating. Okay. Is how powerful okay. he is, but it's also emanating his sovereignty. Like his ability to have complete and uh, control over everything, um, but also his compassion. He's not compelled by his wrath. He's completely in control, and he's near. He's everywhere. Um, his he's personal, like, and he's personal because he's sovereign. Like the sovereignty and the personality play together. So does the power. They're all. They all play into each other, these aspects. And what was the book? Um, what's the title and the author again? Show Me Your Glory, Understanding the Majestic Splendor of God, uh, Stephen J. Lawson. It's interesting because a lot of people now will read scripture, especially the narrative portions um, and stuff like what we're going to read today, which is the yeah. book of Nahum. And they'll try and, uh, again, personify God with certain attributes that's seen in man. Um, and kind of treat it like a personality test where they get to throw everything together. And it's like, yes. what, instead of what would Jesus do, it's what would God do? And then we get to choose whatever kind of um, <laughs> outcome yeah. we believe. And, uh, you know, I, can't, I forget who said it, but uh, as soon as we create God in our image, oh, sorry, what was it? God created us in his image and we returned the favor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and as soon as we yeah. do that, we're no longer serving God. We're serving ourselves, right? Yes. Um, so you got to yeah. be careful when you talk about the attributes of God. It's very true. The personality of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure. And that comes up a lot in Nahum uh, yeah. because it's a, I would say, particularly violent book. 
Well, it's almost the antithesis of Jonah, which was just our last episode. Yeah, yeah, I guess Jonah would be the last episode that came out. Um, yeah, it definitely yeah. doesn't... Well, some of the consequences yeah. of if well, Nineveh didn't yeah. turn back. I think the... the well, it's interesting because it uses the exact same. It references, A, it's the characteristics of God that are leading him to commit this action. Yeah. And Jonah, it's the characteristics of God, which are the reason, the basis for him giving mercy. And in Nahum, it's the characteristics of God, which are the basis for him laying out justice, justice and wrath. Yeah. yeah. Or specifically, as he says, vengeance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, what is that? Um, it's the way I've been thinking about the two books is as if they're, they're guardrails in understanding the interplay between mercy and justice or mm-hmm. grace and wrath that you you have to read both. Um, and we're going to get into this later, but a lot of the message is God is slow to anger and rich in love, but he will act in judgment eventually mm-hmm. uh, at the right time. And that's great to hear for you, the saved person, the people of God, because he's he's gracious He's going to give you as much time as he sees fit. Um, and and that's awesome. But it you also have to be okay with that with your enemies. Because mm-hmm. he's going to be the same way with them. Mm-hmm. But then with your enemies, we, like, we don't like hearing that God is gracious and compassionate to them. But we love hearing that he's eventually going to destroy them. Mm-hmm. But it's the same approach to both us and them. We just don't like the other. Yeah. yeah yeah god has no repulsive other because he is completely other mm-hmm. <laughs> right that's a really cool idea yeah. i guess that would be the aseity of god but that's something yeah. else um i'm gonna have to think about that mm-hmm. anyways most people wouldn't see sorry most people wouldn't uh inherently see jonah and Nahum as, as linked mm-hmm. right because they're not the same genre they don't really have the same message they have like yeah. you said the antithesis of, of each other yeah um they are the opposite they're- um Probably not written at the same time. Oh, definitely not. There's yeah. at least 300 years between the two. Ah, well, that's the thing. Jonah's <laughs> Jonah's dating window is like yeah. 500 some odd years. Yeah, if you've listened to our last episode, you know the dating of Jonah is is yeah. very difficult. Um, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> honestly, um, haven't got a clue. But uh, the touch point is Nineveh, mm. right? the The commonality between the two is the subject of God's wrath. Um, in Jonah, the potential subject, and in Nahum, the guaranteed subject. Well, yeah, it's the in Jonah, it's the object of grace. In Nahum, it's the object of justice. Yeah, from the point of view of uh, the Israelites, it's justice. Yeah, from the Ninevites, it's it's an omen or it's a wrath. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is <laughs> yeah. apocalyptic to them. Yeah, um, which is fairly common in the minor prophets to have something that's the day of the ah, lord that's, right that's such an interesting people somebody a fan eventually should do a piece of art where it shows god approaching the city of nineveh one in light and one in darkness <laughs> <That's pretty cool. laughs> like like yeah. one painting cut in half mm-hmm. and it's him approaching him as like a compassionate like the savior savior and then in the other one it's him coming as like in chapter one the 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 scatterer has approached and the people are freaking out and fires raining down from heaven (laughs) or just a picture of jonah reading nahum with a smile on his face (laughs) (laughs) finally yeah 
I'm spoiling the story. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, there's not much of a narrative to Nahum is the only problem. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I wrote a paper on Nahum. That's what it oh, was. yeah. It's a lesser-known book because I told a friend of mine or whatever that I was writing on Nahum, and they said, is that even a book of the Bible? Because <laughs> <laughs> right, they know I, I like to read yeah. Apocrypha or Pseudepigrapha sometimes, right? Yeah. Just to kind of get some outside views. It's right after Tobit, right? Yeah, it's right after Tobit. No, <laughs> it's, it's part of the Bible. It's just wow. it's so small in the Bible that I have that it's just Micah and Habakkuk, and it's not actually listed on the top of the page because it's so <laughs> short. It's very funny. Yeah. What's something unique? Like, I know you guys... Not I know the answer to this, but unlike the other minor prophets, this one was not a voiced oracle, right? Or no. Not, not thought to be. Well, this is what I call the, uh, it's kind of the safer theory. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So the Hebrew word for book is uh, safer or sefer. Yeah. I can't remember how to pronounce it because we only put the transliterated thing on the notes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it seems like the first appearance of the book of Nahum was the book of Nahum. It wasn't like yeah. a spoken prophecy beforehand. Yeah. Um, it may have been a collection of written stanzas mm-hmm. um, or like pieces of poetry, because as as we'll see when we get into it, there are a couple of different styles of poetry that yeah. occur within Nahum itself. Yeah. yeah. There's there's a there's a constant through line of the the theme and the the topic mm-hmm. but the the styles of the literature change mm-hmm. it's very interesting and we don't know anything about the author as far as my research was it's like yeah nahum means comforter yeah. right so mm-hmm. i don't know it's one of those things where it's, it's yeah. kind of like malachi where his name was messenger ah. and it's like was that his name <laughs> we know yeah um there are people who theorize that yeah. he was a uh, member of, I can't remember the town, but it was within Nineveh's reign. Yeah, there right. it lists in the book uh, Nahum of Elkosh, which is near Nineveh. There's a city called Elkosh mm, in yeah. the modern day near Mosul, um, which is an interesting. But then also Capernaum is Nahum's village in oh, what? Really? Yeah, in yeah. a Greek. Oh, hmm. <laughs> so, but it, they're nowhere near each other. And so it might just like, but it also means comforts village. If you take that. Yeah. Right. So it's like the village of comfort. <laughs> it's like a nice vacation home. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, there's like On some the lake, but there's uh, two other prophets that are from that area near Elkosh, mm-hmm. Elkosh, uh, Habakkuk. And I think Zephaniah are neighboring cities. They're, Two of the other prophets, at least. I forget exactly. But they're they're like all from this kind of like regional area that was controlled by Assyria. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. yeah so as far as like poetic structures go, if we're going to get into that, um, you you mentioned you found this in your in your studies there, Josh, that yeah. it was an acrostic poem, but only about halfway through the alphabet. Yeah. So um, like, yeah. Someone want to explain where an acrostic is? Absolutely. Um, so an acrostic poem is where... In the Hebrew, every line or verse, so to speak, is the first word, the first letter in that word starts with a letter of the alphabet. Um, And the next phrase, the next sentence, the first words, first letter will start with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it'll go first verse, it'll start with a word that starts with Aleph. And the second verse's first word will start with Beit. And that third word we'll start with so in english would be like apples are red bananas are yellow yeah cucumbers are green yes yada 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 yeah 
it only goes halfway up the alphabet and then just stops. Hmm. It's only that long. Which would be an indication of it coming from a larger acrostic poem and being put into a collection. Yeah. Of, yeah, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good reason to think that. And also, it's used for memorization. Oftentimes, Psalm 119. 119. The longest chapter in the Bible. Yeah. Is yeah. it completed? It's a completed acrostic, and each letter has eight verses. If you go to Psalm 119, they'll, you'll often like look at that psalm and be like, why does it have these weird words above every eight verses? And it's because that's the Hebrew alphabet, and it's telling you that the first word of every verse in Hebrew starts with that letter so that you can memorize it. And so while you're saying the verses in your head, you can read out, you can number them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, bait, one, two, three, four, five. And so it, yeah. Well, I mean, it's the longest chapter in the Bible and it was, yeah. it was written specifically to be memorized, <laughs> yeah. which is tough. Um, yeah, for sure. And, and aside from that, the, uh, the book starts with a praise. Yes. Um, of, of God. Uh, and his power and all that, and 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 that's kind of paralleled at the very end when mm -hmm. it's a funeral dirge, yeah. Um, specifically an Assyrian funeral dirge, so it's like, hey, we're gonna sing your song at your funeral. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that's the idea yeah. for the Assyrians. Yeah, which is pretty cool, and I'm sure we'll talk about that when we actually get to the absolutely uh, last chapter. Beautiful. It's short. It might be shorter than Psalm 119. <laughs> we could probably read it. Yeah, it's, we could probably read yeah. it faster than this podcast. Yeah, the audio thing on my like audio Bible was like seven minutes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but just doing a brief overview. Yes. Um, I think we were saying one of us would eat, go through each chapter, just kind of like hitting on the yeah on the uh, main movements. Do we want to go through that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'll start with chapter one. Yeah. Okay. Um, so chapter one is 15 verses long and it goes like this, uh, verses, verse one is the introduction as an oracle to Nineveh. Verse two and three is the praise that Joel was talking about. Um, it all, every line starts off with the Lord is jealous. The Lord is avenging. The Lord is taking vengeance. Um, and then three B starts this description of God coming in power to Nineveh, destroying the sea, uh, making waste bountiful places, making flat the mountains in front of him, the earth like giving way. And then verses 6 to 11 is talking about the attributes of God. Um about how his wrath is poured out, his indignation, talks about the Lord as being good, a refuge. And it gives this introduction to the destruction of Nineveh and the problems they're going to have. The destruction is going to be complete. He's going to pursue his enemies into darkness. And then finally, in verse 11, with the destruction of the, the one who plots evil against the Lord. Um, and then verse 12 gets to... Verse 14 is the Lord specifically commanding the attack, the destruction of Nineveh. And then verse 15 is a behold uh, of the good news to the, to the Judeans mm. that their freedom has come. So why was it good news? It was good news because their oppressor was going to be destroyed. And also uh, Paul alludes to this chap verse. 
when he says, behold, the feet of those who come with the word of God mm. is verse 15, behold upon the mountains, the feet of him. Well, it's interesting as yeah. well, because Isaiah uses the exact same phrase. Uh, yeah. He introduces it a little differently with um, how beautiful instead of yes. behold or, yeah. or whatnot. Um, but uh, Isaiah does the whole like, this is the messengers bringing the news of, hey, we're returning to Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, from exile. Yeah. Returning so, to, to the place of God. Yeah, there's there's an aspect of deliverance with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Isaiah Isaiah and Nahum uh, quote each other verbatim on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then we get into chapter two. Yeah. The scatterer. <laughs> so chapter two kind of records the actual battle or destruction mm-hmm. motif in like several several vision sections and from what i'm seeing actually the the notes that josh had prepared here um there's several ways that you could break that up um there's kind of like the introduction of verse one and two where it describes god coming to the city um his his destructive or undoing creative powers just leveling everything and then um three to nine kind of uh, describes like the actual battle and like the challenge to the of the, of the the siege um it gives kind of this like like it moves from outside the city to the wall to the inside well yeah and then the very next one is it kind of goes hey this is being destroyed but then it moves into this analogy of in the lion's den yeah so it's like yeah. they've gotten into the home yeah um, they've breached the walls you're into the citadel it's yeah. over and it's all in rune um, and then uh, 13 um, kind of summarizes it, it kind of brings God's agency back into it yeah. where it is uh, God is the one who is causing the destruction, yeah. the siege, the war. Um, yeah. And then that gets right into chapter three. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to, sorry, I should have pointed this out when Josh was going through chapter one, uh, but it's my favorite verse Absolutely. Uh, for, and everyone knows what I'm going to talk about because I talk about it all the time. And it's Nahum 1.9. Um, yeah. And it goes, what, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Mm-hmm. And I like the implication of like, hey, when God strikes, yeah. he doesn't have to a second time. Yeah. <laughs> right? like there's, there's not going to be a second punch. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and think, some translations do translate that specifically. Mm-hmm. I will not have to strike a second time. Yeah, for sure. Um, the ESV that I'm reading yeah. doesn't doesn't yeah, do that. Yeah, the ESV's not cool. ESV sometimes is not cool. As yeah. you have a ESV in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all have an ESV right now, but we're yeah, like, we're ah, kind of don't that. <laughs> yeah, so the third chapter um, is, is actually the one that I wrote a paper on back when I took a Minor Prophets um, class. I think I ended up doing 9 to... It looks like from the markings of my Bible that I probably did 9 to 18... Um, (laughs) specifically but uh you know that's that's that um and it's kind of it's the woe to Nineveh so it's the one that ends in the funeral dirge right so it can be self-contained but it also has some parallels with chapter two and um specifically the word woe is always pre god's judgment yeah no i I talked earlier about the the day of the lord yeah um which is common in minor prophet literature and it can be either a great thing or a really bad thing yeah and uh, I, I think it's interesting because uh, the day of the Lord is both the destruction and recreation of yeah. order, yeah. Um, which I thought was interesting uh, 
the heel striking the serpent's head. Yes. Um, you brought this up the other day when we were chatting, something like that, um, that in the act of the cross, the serpent's being stepped on. But he's also biting his heel at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I believe that was specifically thing. Caleb that said that. Was it? Oh, I'm yeah. Sorry. I think so. Yeah. I don't know. It's Whatever happens. A lot of people have pointed it out through 2,000 yeah. years. <laughs> yeah. The day of the Lord is the shuffling of order where both the good and the bad is recreated. It's also very interesting because the day of the Lord originally, that, that concept, I actually contemplated about doing this for my Bibtheo paper, mm. um, is it, it develops throughout the biblical account. And so, picking it up right here in Nahum, you're getting a very you're getting a very specific point in it, because yeah. uh, it starts off with just generic deliverance from oppression. Okay. Yeah, um, and then it kind of goes into yeah, but if you are the oppressor, what then? Yeah. Well, what, what happens in the day yeah. of the Lord? What what happens yeah. when the day of the Lord comes, and yeah. you are the one who is the oppressor? Yeah, it's the day of the Lord comes, and everybody is involved. If you're the oppressor, it's bad. If you're the one being oppressed, it's a good day. And minor prophets emphasize that point, but they also start to emphasize the point where it's like, yeah, but like everyone's kind of not doing great. No, Uh-oh. it sucks. But like, yeah, well, you get into the into the it's sin yeah. and humanity's inability to yeah. to actually escape the day yeah. of the, to get the wrath of God, and then you obviously that immediately steps into uh, that informs Paul's. Hey, everyone's under the wrath of God, like theme. Yeah. So oh. there's something there, and that develops. Okay. So that this is, I just have to do a quick interject into the New Testament. So that's a really interesting take on death, because that you kind of get this illusion in death where every death is a day of the Lord for the individual, yeah. because it's a destruction of the evil within you, and the and if you're saved, the the brought into rest, yeah. and so like. Every human death becomes a day of the Lord for that individual. It sucks, but it's made good if you're saved. And to be fair, it's never explicitly called the day of the Lord when you yeah, die in no. Scripture, but that's a cool idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I almost did day of the Lord yeah. for uh, for my... Yeah. Uh, called the personalization of the day of the Lord. <laughs> it's like, oh my goodness. But, but yeah, in Nahum, it's yeah. getting that idea. It's it's more the, uh, the classical... Um, yes. Day of the Lord, um, where it is the the oppressor uh, yeah. is being lifted from the oppre- from the oppressee. Yeah, oppressee. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's emphasizing that lifting motif. Yes. So that lifting, not motif, that lifting aspect. L- less the actual. Hey, let the uh, the oppressed go. Yeah. Which is more emphasized in what? Exodus and whatnot. It's. Spe- emphasizing the condemnation of the oppressor. But then what's so interesting is like with Manasseh, the way God describes it is as if washing a plate and flipping it over and putting it to the side. That came out of nowhere, but all right. Like I agree. No, but like like, like he describes it as if it's just like, oh, it's just something I got to do. It's my chore. Just, Uh, I'm just washing the plate. Done. I don't, it was not a problem. It's just something I got to do. Interesting. Yeah. Part of me is like, show your work. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to have to think more about Manasseh in that context. I don't know if I, yeah. I'm there. Okay. But the day of the Lord in Nahum. Yeah, we've only gotten to chapter, chapter two. Three, verse one. Chapter three, verse one. Here's the thing. I think we have to go further back. <laughs> um, so it's woe to Nineveh, right? Nineveh was going to be destroyed. 
um, it says at the end of chapter two, and I, I get you didn't bring this up because it directly parallels into chapter three, and I was going to talk about it anyways, but he talks about the lion's den, mm-hmm. right? Um, desolate and in ruins, hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish in all, is in all the lions, all faces grow pale. Where's the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. So what he's talking about is like, what happened? I thought you guys were strong. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you, well, you can't take a punch. <laughs> Yeah, well, and the um, what's cool about that image, the description of the, like, he's describing the people, like, their reaction to what's happening, and the one uh, commentator I was reading was describing the, like, the verses, like, nine to the end, sorry, um, three to the end is, like, the men line up to battle, the chariots then race to the outer wall, they then build the siege towers, and then they're, like, fighting in the city, and it ends with the lion's den of them. They're in the area where nobody can, has conquered. Yeah, the, the, den, the citadel, the safe place. Yeah. And and there, it's all the citizenry hiding in their houses, paralyzed. They're like, what? What, what do we do? This has never happened before. And then God's like, Hey, where are you at? I thought I thought you were, I thought you were the the scary people. You're not fighting. <laughs> like. <pretty> good. <laughs> Yeah, because that then chapter two ends with "Behold, I am against you," declares the Lord of Hosts. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, fair yeah. enough. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm going to smother you. <laughs> it's like oh, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, this is why some people will point out and say, like, "Hey, God's kind of angry in this one." Hey? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Well, it, it's like, it's like. Like, it's not exactly like that, but it's like when, like, little brother gets beat up at school by the bully, like, the school bully, and then mm-hmm. big bro from high school <laughs> comes over, and he's, like, pushing the bully around. He's like, hey, what do you, you thought you were big and tough? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, you're just big here. Mm-hmm. Well, like, it's, it, this might be an appropriate time to, to point out who the Assyrians actually were. Yeah, go for it. Because yeah. um, they were not... Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were not just like oh, that's some other generic empire in the yeah. in the uh, ancient Near East, yeah. but they were horrible, absolutely atrocious. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention the uh, the types of tortures that they would do when they come in and take An over area. nations. Yeah, um, they would often remove those people groups, spread them around, yeah. to, um, so that that new conquered land wouldn't end up. Ob- immediately revolt they'd move other conquered people in that were dependent upon the empire um but absolutely atrocious um one of the things uh just an example um esther the whole gallows Mm -hmm. scene um that reference to gallows uh that's not hanging gallows uh that's one whole pole that they set you on and in in a very uncomfortable in a very uncomfortable way and it goes through you slowly and you die because it's sharpened to a point. Yeah. yeah. Um, Joel, you want to talk about yeah, the boats? they would just go for cruelty. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah the boats. Yeah. So uh, I don't know how it got this nickname. Maybe it was just actually the name of it, but what we call the boats. One guy would be laid in the boat, and then there'd be another boat put on top of him. Then they'd smear his hands and feet with honey. And he's like he's like a spread eagle. Yeah, he's spread eagle. Yeah, he's spread Hands out. and feet on the outside of the boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, then basically they would let birds of prey and, and bugs and everything come and gnaw off his hands and feet. 
But then wouldn't the, the like termites get in the bones and yeah, go in real bad? Yeah. But, yeah. So the whole idea was to keep them alive for as long as you can. Yeah. And then as comfortable as long as you yeah. can. Baking between two boats in mm-hmm. the sun. And yeah. The sun. And then sometimes they would just set them out into the water and the alligators would take them. And that's how they actually died. Um, yeah. If it was taking too long, that's what they would do. Yeah. These are just some of the, the, yeah. the fun things that cool. they would do. And the most notable thing, one of the most notable things of Assyria is if you wanted an audience with the king, you they would make you wait in the entrance hall outside of the throne room. And the walls of the entrance room was depicted of all the kingdoms that they slaughtered. Pictures of them cutting the king, mm-hmm. killing women, mm-hmm. and all this. Stuff. And then you're about to walk into the throne room of the guy who commissioned that. Yeah. Yeah. And and the the cutting open of the yeah. womb of of pregnant women, oh. and the the things that they would do, like it's actually the what they did to the uh, to the king of um, Israel, yes. the whole um, killing his sons in front of them, yeah. in front of him in a horrible grotesque way, and then yeah. gouging his eyes out. Just yeah. to, hey, the last thing you saw, yeah. Yeah, which God also makes a really not nice joke about that at the end of Chronicles. Yeah. So God tells him, uh, you won't, don't worry, you won't see it. What? Isn't it like you yeah. won't see it coming? Yeah, no, he's like, like, you won't see your enemy, like, take you over. It's fine. And then his eyes get gouged out. You won't see captivity is what he says. And oh, so that's it, right. he that's... takes his... They take his eyes out, and then they walk him across to captivity. Not to mention, they would put hooks in the faces yes. of people that yeah. them, as they take them over to other yeah, places. connecting and, all their noses together. Yeah. Anyway, um, that to say, <laughs> God's you, angry at these you people. You weren't looking to conquer Assyria. This is not a threat from Israel. This no. is, yeah. This, is, this makes t- being taken over by the Romans look great. Oh, Romans yeah. built infrastructure. You got, you got citizenship, water, plumbing, roads, <laughs> roads. Mm-hmm. No, totally different aspect than being. Oh, you're yeah. being assaulted by the Assyrian Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, brutal. And so, God's wrath upon them isn't it? It it's not like we're just sitting here going like, ah, God just pours out His wrath on anybody. No, it's no. And, and with the Book of Jonah in mind. This is why Jonah hates them. Yeah. And so when God's like, you don't want me to be compassionate to these people? Why not? (laughs) Yeah. And and now we're seeing God going, okay, but now enough. Yeah. Empires are all subject to his. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a whole thing. So as we get into chapter three, finally, I'm so sorry that we had to prerequisite that all no, of this with so much, but that's, that's the meat of the book. You know, that's yeah. that's where you know it has its its best points. Um, so we talked about that metaphor of the lions, just so that it would be perfectly understood mm-hmm. that this next part is a metaphor. And the gates to Nineveh had two giant lions in front of them, and mm-hmm. there was lion imagery all around Israel, uh, Assyria. Yeah. So that's why mm-hmm. lions. Yeah, the gate gate of Ishtar, is that right? No, that's Babylonian. Yeah. Come on, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. So, that's like the woe to Nineveh. It goes into, um, again, we're still talking about the, the war imagery, but then it takes a weird turn. Um, when I was doing research, we I saw a lot of uh, feminist journals that were not pleased with this part. There are some people who... Um, have said the only reason Nahum's in the Bible at all is because it was already included in the Book of the Twelve Prophets, yeah. and that this doesn't show the character of God, and they were very angry about it. 
mm-hmm. um, which I thought was too harsh uh, and didn't take the metaphor seriously. But if, you've, if you're reading along at home, you'll know what I'm talking about. So it talks about, um, I'm going to get the wording right here. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face and will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. So it's using the actions of the Assyrians in war, war crimes, horrible things they've done, as a metaphor for the judgment God is going to place upon them. Mm -hmm. You you get what I'm saying there? Yep. Yeah, so... um, there's been some kickback saying this is violence against women, which nobody likes to see. Yes. Um, but I feel like that's denying the metaphor and showing that, like, no, what you've done to others, the Lord will do against you because if you've yeah. subjected other nations as a powerful nation, yeah, God is the most powerful above all nations. Yeah. And um, the the description of the this this thing that god does the showing her nakedness throwing the the abominable filth at her and then making the kingdoms look at her mm-hmm. as a spectacle to humiliate it's at least a metaphor mm-hmm. describing as done as you did to others mm-hmm. so shall be done to you yeah well, it's also interesting this is like one of the things that i found and this might yeah. be like not very yeah. consequential but the words chosen yes by the author um specifically tie to the description of jezebel in second uh, kings nine twenty two. Mm-hmm. um at least in in root form they, they yeah. do and so several people tie into this like um it's the it's the archetype of if you will mm-hmm. of uh seductress evil this evil seductress yeah. that both oppresses and encourages more oppression yeah. um and from there some some commentators will then go that you can see that start to play up into um the whore babylon and revelation yes. mm-hmm. and you see the same image for assyria in ezekiel um ezekiel 23 5 to 13 describes assyria as a mistress who whores herself to other nations promising wealth and protection but when then turned against her, she sells them out to brutality and destruction of the soldiers. Yeah. Um, and there's this this pattern that Assyria used to do, where they would nations would who weren't under their control as a vassal mm-hmm. would see the wealth and the trade and the, of the merchants of Nineveh and Asher, and they would opt to join. And so their merchants would enter the city with their guards and stuff like that, and then stuff would go continue to be great and then some bad stuff might happen and then those kingdoms would be like ah we don't we don't like that you do this we want you out and then the attack would happen yeah once they already had a foothold interesting Mm -hmm. interesting so there's like an allusion to this in ezekiel and maybe an allusion here that there's a she she uh in verse four For all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and the people with her charms. And it's like she's like, hey, you want this? I have all this fun stuff, this gold, this nice clothes, stuff like that. The sexual part. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when the people don't want that, she's like kind of like Delilah. Okay, soldiers, come in. Well, it's it's also worth noting that the... uh 
the following section, the the, yeah. the difficult section, is about the disgrace. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Some people articulate it as like assault, um, but I think it's more highlighting the dis- Yahweh disgracing her, the city, mm-hmm. um, and that type of mm-hmm. uh, government and economic system and that type yeah. of luxury living of oppression. Yeah. Um, I think that's what's going on there. Well, yeah, that would make sense when it flows into verse 8. Um, it says, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart at sea and her water, her and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and without limit. Put, put and the Libyans were her helpers. Now, I don't understand that last line. I'm going to have to think about it, but whatever. Um, Thebes would have been one of the most powerful vassal states of Egypt, which was a shrinking empire at this point. Um, and uh, Assyria ruined them pretty heavily. Um, even though they had some of those trade relations with uh, the Egyptian vassals that you were you were mentioning there, Josh. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. Kush would have been an Ethiopian-occupied uh, yeah. uh, place. Again, it's like, hey, here are all the most powerful cities of, of nations that you are contemporary with. Yeah. Are you better than them? Mm-hmm. You destroyed them, but... You're going to be destroyed just as well. Yeah. The same disgrace, the same humility, the same people aren't going to come and rescue you just like nobody rescued them from you. Yeah. These are the most powerful people on earth. They're not going to come help you. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, it's... Yeah. They, they can't wait to see mm-hmm. your destruction. Mm-hmm. How long... Like, I know the, uh, the dating of Nahum is debated, but when was the uh, sacking of Thebes? 750? Uh, 750. Six. Yeah, 750. And then later on. Did we find a wrong date? We might have. I just have it written down that it was 50 years before Nineveh was destroyed. Yes, and Nineveh was destroyed in 612, and Thebes was destroyed in 660-something. 663. There okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, by Nabopolassar, who was a Babylonian king, the great-great-grandfather of Nebuchadnezzar that we see in... Daniel. Um, so would he have done that on behalf as a vassal state of Assyria? Um, no, he, he destroyed Nineveh. Oh, no, sorry, we're talking about the destruction of, of yeah. Assyria. Yeah, now we need to talk about Thebes. Um, I don't know if I... Oh, uh, Ashurbanipal yeah. destroyed yeah. Thebes. Yeah. yeah, 50 years before. Um, and I believe it was Ashurbanipal II that Nebuchadnezzar defeated um, with the Babylonians, the Scythians, and the Medes. So it was a coalition of three different uh, people groups yeah. that all went against him in a legendary three-month siege. Yeah. Which, if you're a good city, you last longer than three months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's that's insane. Oh, um, it's, at the yeah. time, you're fighting five different armies in a civil war? <laughs> Wild. It's like, no wonder God had to be the one to destroy the city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was a world war. <laughs> And to be fair, they would have seen this as directly responsible to their own gods yes. um, because war was a divine action, yeah. um, even to the point where when war wasn't going on, Nurgle wasn't around and he was in the underworld taking care of the people who had already died. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like that well, was their idea of war. And like gods directly correlated. When it says in Behold Him Against the Close of the Lord, talks about the mistress, mm-hmm. chapter three. Um 
the mistress might be referring to there is a female goddess in Assyria that translates to she who is fixed and God talks about moving the city like mm. like shaking the city to its foundation all these things about mm. this mistress female god and so it's as if he's a the the description of the also to Jezebel but also to this female personification of Assyria right. that they had about themselves about no I don't move yeah. I'm unmovable and then God's like nah we'll see about that <laughs> yeah for sure and, and even like I, I found some uh, chroniclings of the actual siege itself when I was writing the paper which was so cool yeah it felt so cool to get like yeah. the actual stuff and uh, it, it seemed an awful lot like like God's action in this like they were trying to mimic or mm. this was mimicking them in some yeah. kind of parody sense. Um, and it said on the tablet that recorded the battle, let the one who loves Nabu and Marduk keep this tablet, not let it stray into other hands. So, like, they saw their own conquering of Nineveh also as an action of their god. So everyone's god was mad at Assyria. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> wanted them to die. Everyone wanted a peace. Yeah, yeah. basically. Yes. Well, I mean, that's why you had three, you had the Scythians, the Medes, and the Babylonians. Which the Babylonians and the Medes weren't really friends after oh, this. Oh no! Like they they wouldn't work together. Well, then it was the Medes that took over Babylon for a very short period of time, and then the Persians. Yeah. Well, and it, technically, I think it was uh the Nebuchadnezzar was on his way to Asher to attack it, uh, and when he got there, the Medes had already defeated half the city, and so yeah. he was like, ah, oh, darn. Came in and then helped fight the rest of it. Then you say, okay, so we're taking Nineveh, right? And then they were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get him when he's down. <laughs> yeah. I think one of my favorite images that's historically based in Nahum is the um, the fig trees. Yeah. Uh, All your fortresses are like fig trees with fist-ripe figs. If shaken, they will fall into the mouths of the eater. So one of the things that... Uh, Sennacherib? Sennacherib? Sennacherib. There we go. Yeah. I could never pronounce his name because it's one of those things you never hear. Okay, listen. Assyrian mm -hmm. emperor names are <laughs> next level. They're awesome. <laughs> um, so I already forgot how to say that one. Sennacherib? Sennacherib. Yep. There we go. Okay, uh, cool. Asarhaddon. Asarhaddon. Ashurbanipal. Yeah. Took me so long to figure Pileser. Oh, yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Anyways. I like to think that you just practice these. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sennacherib specifically planted fig trees within mm -hmm. Nineveh yeah. so that if anyone was ever called away in the line of duty, this was technically a standing army, yeah. um, they were able to grab figs and leave the city on a full stomach. Yeah. That was the idea. Okay. I just saw this on the news. This is incredible that I'm saying this on the podcast. <laughs> uh, okay. So you know how ISIS destroyed the gates of Nineveh? Yeah, it was so sad. 2014. Guess what? Yeah. They didn't. Huh? They found the ruins. They've uncovered them, and they're they're destroyed. But like the the wall is still there, like the entrance wall. Mm -hmm. And they actually found more stuff because of the bombs, including in the gate. There was covered with what they thought was the block, but it was just dirt covered wall that they didn't want to touch. Mm. Was a whole like it's like a ten meter long in pieces, untouched description of Sennacherib with those trees oh that's awesome <laughs> yeah that's like, awesome like going through the city mm -hmm. and that's the gateway into the city where those trees are yeah and it's of Sennacherib it's it's, it's like carved in like like 3d 
carving. Is the um not is, but the walls that they found. Yeah, are they cl- at least a little bit closer? No, no, no. To so the- it's the same walls that were there in Mosul. called the gates of Nineveh. Yeah. But it was just, it shook them because of all the bombing. And like part of the archway is gone. And like, it's not impressive. Because they they did level that gateway. Yes. And actually the tomb of Jonah. It's about half the size, but they unlocked this whole new area. And it's specifically about this. That's (laughs) awesome. That is so cool. Um, Sennacherib's also the one that attacks Israel. And then the angel kills 180,000. Yeah. 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 Yep. Now. But mm. fun fact to the kings. Thebes. Thebes. After Thebes. Yeah, it goes uh, right back into like, hey, fortify your walls. Um, because a city wasn't a city without walls. Yeah. And even if it's saying fortifies your walls, it means everything. It's like you're you're going to die. Um, it, you don't exist without walls in that era. Yeah. Um, and it'd be really hard to build as well because everyone builds on a hill. Yeah. Um, which is, is kind of stupid. But it's good defensively. Right. Well, for them as well, almost all the bricks that they had were mud. Ba- <coughs> Excuse me, mud-based in that p- period, in that uh, geographical location. Yep. Um, and so everything that was built would have had to take way, way longer because mm-hmm. um, you wouldn't just grab stones, quarry them to the right size, throw them in. Mm-hmm. It also. T- oh, sorry. What were you gonna say, Josh? No, continue. I was just gonna say that the the princes were like locusts, very destructive. They just kind of eat everything. They're pigs. Yeah. And it also gets to the point of like, hey, you have so many princes that they're not really useful anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like you're 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 over indulging in the finer yeah. things. And what's cool about this description of locusts mm-hmm. is somebody that the guy I was reading noticed that locusts stay immobile on a cold day. But when oh, it gets yeah. hot, they f- mm-hmm. they fly away. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so if you take that into war imagery, when you're not in battle, mm-hmm. they, they're in the city. Yeah. But the moment the heat of the battle starts, they leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's like, he's in describing them as locusts, he's also describing them as cowards yeah. that devour. Yeah, and that, that's what it says there. Mm-hmm. Setting on your fences in the day of the cold. And when the sun rises, they fly away and no one knows where they are. Yeah. Which is very funny. It's very funny coming from a Babylonian perspective too, because their sometimes their kings would just run away and do whatever they yeah. wanted. Uh, what's his name? Nebonitis. Nebonitis. Yeah, yeah, he's my favorite Babylonian. Uh, Indiana Jones. I want to be an archaeologist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just so cool to live in an era where people who lived before you were more technologically advanced than you are now, which is not something we think about in the modern day. But it'd be sick to find a city that was beyond your ability to build. That's. Well, that's where the idea of legendary swords comes from as well. That, yeah. but also like they, they af- Assyria was the power. So after them, they're living in a post-golden age technically. Mm-hmm. And Nineveh was, ha- is described by everybody as having this legendary wall, mm-hmm. massive city that when Alexander the Great comes by 300 years later, they're, they're next to the city. They've conquered Persia. Yeah. They're just about to conquer Susa, the capital of the world's greatest empire. And they're next to the city and they're like, Holy shit! Who who built this? <laughs> and Xenophon Xenophon goes a little like yeah. extravagant with the way it is, but nonetheless, he's still like as the biggest thing I've ever seen. Oh yeah, he's the one that's like it takes three days to walk around it. No, 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 no that's Jonah. <laughs> oh okay, also, cool, cool, cool. yeah, and that's like okay, if he's yeah. talking about like the the circumference, yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. He says it's eighteen miles in diameter. Yeah, and the gates are like in anyway. He goes a little wild with it. One hundred fifty feet tall. Yeah. The point being. 
Okay, it was a huge city, though. Yeah. Here's a fun fact from a guy named Adolf Oppenheim, who okay. I did some research. Unfortunate he's name. My f- it, it is, but, you know, he's German. He's, he's a cool guy. Yeah. Um, Pre- Pre... No, post. Oh, that's a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, so he talks about the, the city's size. Mm-hmm. It may have been large enough that they just had nomadic yes. farmers that would just circle the city every year. And yeah. as they would go around the city, the grass would be grown enough yeah. that their sheep would just keep eating. And, and by the time they got around to the other side... There were whole villages living in sections mm-hmm. of the city, districts of the city... That were not connected to each other. Yeah. After it fell. After it fell. Yeah, like like fell. settlers. There were like a couple hundred people living in this section, a couple hundred people living in that section. Well, part of that was the Assyrian conquering style as well. Yeah. Where they would assimilate other nations into a larger mm-hmm. city. Um, which means, while they were horrible bosses, they did invent interculturalism. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. funny. No, that's, that's a point that Oppenheim yeah. makes is like, hey, if... If that didn't happen, we might have found a very different cultural center. Yeah. And that also was the key to their success. Oh, 100%. Was stopping yeah. people from a belly because they I think lost it was the key to Cyrus's success as well. Because he was able to give them back the land that was taken from them and yes. thus earn the favor of the people. Yes. But, Josh, the last, the last two verses, you mentioned earlier about how, like, that final battle. So, like, after yeah. the fall of Nineveh occurs, but the king and the, the remnants of the army run away. They run to, like, yeah. some fortress place um and yes. then uh uh what's the babylonian king it's like nebuchadnezzar yeah yeah i can't remember that um wages war wait babylonian king uh, nebuchadnezzar nebuchadnezzar yeah. yeah um because so after they flee in 609 the the assyrian king had ran and there's a he joins forces with his egyptian counterparts and then they fight oh, yeah. um and that's where he finally defeats them What's interesting is I think that battle is the one that Josiah tries to stop. Um, is that's King Nico of Egypt going north to join Assyria to fight Babylon. Um, I believe that's the case. I can be wrong. Well, he died in 609. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's the same war that, and God tells him not to fight because if he's, and because he it kind of seems like he wants both of them to go so both nations are destroyed like they're defeated Mm -hmm. the kings of both great empires are gone and now it's babylon alone and but also by throwing in like josiah doesn't does he he whose side does he does he go on i'm I'm having Um, a historically he blank here does he tries his hardest to stay fully away from other nations. Right. But I think he goes to stop uh, Nico. Yeah, he right? fights the Egyptian. So technically he would be, in, in all intents and purposes, yeah. aiding Babylon. Aiding Babylon, but in doing so, it would... But the, the purpose given that he gives is because the king's road runs through Israel. And so he, being a weak vassal state of foreign nations constantly, he's opposing these nations and he was a vassal state of egypt mm-hmm. and so he kind of sees this as i can't just let my previous owner run through my kingdom that i'm supposed to protect uh, through my land unhindered but in that battle yeah um the assyrian king dies assyrian king dies um and that's arguably referenced in 18 
yes. with this like mortal wound. Yeah, three. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? That's the funeral dirge. Yeah. So like. When they would have a funeral for their soldiers, God's like, hey, I'm having a funeral for you. Yeah. And it's not, but it's also like mocking because it's like mm-hmm. everyone else is like, woo, he's dead. Well, usually the, yeah. the funeral dirge would be honoring the sacrifices of the yeah. fallen soldier. Yeah. Right. And it would, it's not it's, that. No. It's, and it, when you compare it's, it to the, the beginning praise, it's so cool. It's also interesting because in, so like in 114, um, the reference that Nahum uses from Exodus and Deuteronomy about the characteristics of God, both yeah. of them follow it up with this God, with this like, uh, what's a good way to put it? Um, like transgenerational punishment of sin. Yes. Right? Um, to the second and third generation. Yeah. And it would appear is that, and, and th- those are the references that Nahum uses for his, these are the characteristics of God. Um, in one fourteen, that idea of the, judgment on the offspring also kind of appears in 114 where there's this um hey your your offspring won't continue your your name shall be yeah um, the household gods will be cut off your the uh carved image your carved image and sorry your carved image and the metal image i will make for your grave you are vile and so the whole thing is uh in 114, a little bit of research Mm -hmm. that i did is like oh so this is the worst possible case scenario that kids could bury their father with what the kids there are um however the whole point there is that yeah your kids won't make it either and your funeral with the kids is not going to go well either yeah um and so there's he's even still interacting with that uh, the even the the context of the uh, the verses that he uses for god's characteristics yeah it's interesting there's another parallel to your trees in chapter two that are very interesting chapter two verse two uh, for the Lord is restoring. This is the charge that this one guy says. This is the charge that is that the Lord is giving as judgment on Nineveh. This is the thing they're guilty of. The Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob, the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. And he's describing the what he gets at with later imagery through, throughout this text is he's describing Jacob and Judah as his vineyard that he's been growing. And these marauders come in and don't just take the fruit, Mm -hmm. but in doing so, break the branches and then pour out the juice. Oh, this actually refers to the actual economic state of Judah at this time. Yeah. Because uh, Assyria would have had the largest oil trade, like olive oil. Yeah. And that is because they took advantage of the the Mount of Olives. Like literally, they took over the grove when they took over Judah. They're like, oh, this seems good. And then they would export that to a nearby vassal. Yeah. Right. Like it wouldn't even be to Judah itself. It would it would go in and help the economy of one of their already existing vassal states. Yeah. Yeah. That that's both a physical and and uh, metaphorical description of Judah. Yeah. Um, And he gets, and then later on when he's attacking them, because he talks about plundering Nineveh, he because it's a vengeful act, um, is he shakes their trees. Yeah. And so like he's doing to them like with the Thebes point. He's shaking their trees, breaking their branches, dropping their fruits so that they can't get the benefit of their own fruit. Beautiful. Their their fruit being military strength. Their fruit being military strength. Yeah. And their their uh 
their immense trade network. Because Israel was pretty rich at that time. Yeah. They also had a lot to lose from conquering. It wasn't like they yeah. were a tiny vassal state. They were on their way to becoming one of the big ones. Yeah. Right? And it was because of the collapse of the Egyptian empire yeah. and the releasing of vassal states, which Israel would have been almost a vassal state at that point, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't have been as beholden to Egypt because of its lower economic yeah. power. Yeah. Um, and the switchover from the, from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. Yeah. It was right at about 1200 when Saul took over. Yeah. Um, so that buildup of power would yeah. have made Israel. And then it would have Israel. peaked with Solomon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then it would have just gradually went down until, Yeah, of course, we get to the last king. Um, yeah. yeah. Sad, sad. What do you guys think the practical application of this very historically and prophetically based book is? Because it's hard sometimes to make sense of historical narratives yeah. Um, with so much background where you know that even if you read the words, there's so much more going on there. Yes. Specifically right. like the when it falls into the eater. Um yeah. the falls into the to the that's also the word for sword. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um the word sword in Hebrew is also the word eater. It's described literally as an eater. It's an eater of flesh. Um yeah. and so that if you're talking about the fruit as the military power, it's they will fall into the hand of the swords of their enemies. That's so cool. <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, stuff like that, where it's just like, there's these little images everywhere describing the, with these historical implications. So again, what is the practical application of Nahum's diss track? Diss track? <laughs> that, I mean, I, mean I, I think that it's that God remains sovereign over even the evil empires and that just wait, the day yeah. of the Lord comes. Yeah. To take from the rest of scripture, not just Nahum, there's a pattern. An evil nation rules. That evil nation is then judged. God's empire doesn't need to strike back. <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. a good name for this episode. I don't know if it's going to be the name, but we'll see. It's probably yeah. just going to be Nahum. Because <laughs> we're fun like that. We're we're real creative guys. Yeah. Um, I think this book, the Lord takes vengeance and is on his adversaries and keeps wrath of his en- enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Mm-hmm. Um, he takes vengeance, but he's patient, willing that people hopefully yeah. will repent. I think I I like to juxtapose it with yeah. Jonah um, yeah. as a case study on God's. Uh, on on God's attributes as laid out previously in scripture. Yeah. This is a historical accounts of how they worked. Yeah. Uh, worked out and how they worked out in different ways. Actually, well, how long did God wait to judge Nineveh? I think it was 150 to 300 years. I guess, you know what? We don't know that because how long before Jonah were they also sitting? Who knows? Even if when did, when was Israel captured? 720? 758? That sounds, that sounds right. Sounds right. I don't know. Um, here's, here's one of the interesting things. Um, with Sorry, I'm interrupting you. Carry on. <laughs> forgive me. Caleb, I forgive you. Um, what I was going to say, I just had like one sentence left, was it's he waits a long time. He waited longer than the entire age of Canada. Like, just <laughs> yeah. take that into consideration. Canada's 153, 154, 155 years old. He waited twice that. That's yeah. funny. Um, <laughs> like, or he waited that, and Canada's in for it. Uh, <laughs> uh, Na- Na- this is a quote by uh, theologian um, Gary Schneider, German, 
I think. Okay. <laughs> uh, Nahum alone of the prophets uh, exegetically advances the attributed the attribute formula uh, with respect to vengeful outcomes provoking Yahweh's jealousy. So uh, of the the Hebrew uh, word uh, nakam, which is yeah. about which is uh, to avenge or punish. Uh, yeah. It's and it's and it's uh, noun. Yeah. Version. So the ver- uh, the verb shows up thirty five times in the Old Testament. It's noun. Uh, versions show up 44 times however only in deuteronomy uh, uh 32 41 and 43 jeremiah 46 10 and nahum 1 2 is it used as god as the subject and the enemies the and uh, the enemies of israel or the enemies of god as an object yeah and so it's very interesting that this is that this concept is isn't super developed throughout the rest of scripture, mm-hmm. but it is explicitly the main theme of Nahum. And I, I think I read. I could be completely wrong. It's it's a legal term because of the reference that oh, a lot of times in Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a God's vengeance on the behalf of. Yes, and it's, it's it's tied to that day yeah. of the Lord yeah. deliverance theme. Yeah, it's a due to His decree of justice. Mm-hmm. The the vengeance is poured forth. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, guys, I think this might be the most intensive conversation I've ever had on Nahum. <laughs> and I hope whoever started listening to this podcast didn't know Nahum was a book of the Bible. <laughs> and that this is just a blind side. And they're um, like, wow, this is so cool. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for the Second Rate Saints discussion of Nahum. Are we, are we good to cap it there? Absolutely, yeah. Hopefully we didn't leave too many loose ends. What's up, Josh? Listen to our podcast. They just Seriously, did. are you going to put that at the end of the podcast episode? <laughs> uh, tell people about the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, check out our social media. Yeah, we're all over social media now. All over Instagram. Well, Joel is. It's just Instagram, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I try to get on Twitter, but then the, the, it kind of started blowing up my phone all the time. And, yeah. and it's like they kept on... Anyways, there's a whole thing. Email us. Check out the blog on the website. Check out the website. Check out the book review section. Check out... Um, Stuart posts stuff on the blog... The only person to message our Twitter was a Joel Osteen fake account. And it said, I would love to send you prayers. What is your WhatsApp? <laughs> oh, and then called us Beloved. Yeah, they said, <laughs> Beloved, what is your WhatsApp? I would love to pray for you, but not on this platform. Give me $5. It's super weird. Um, we won't do that to you guys. Not like Joel Osteen. No. Um, we believe what we say. But that being said, Joel that. runs an amazing Instagram account. Beautiful. So please, follow us there. Uh, engage in the small little community that we got going on there. It's fun. And we'll see you next episode. Just end it.